0: Notre-Dame de Paris by Victor Hugo. Book Nine, Chapter Four. Earthenware and Crystal. One day followed another. Calm gradually returned to Esmeralda's soul. Excess of grief, like excess of joy, is a violent thing, and of brief duration. The heart of man cannot long remain at any extreme. The gypsy had suffered so much surprise was the only emotion of which she was now capable. With security, hope had returned. She was far away from society, far from life, but she vaguely felt that it might not perhaps be impossible to return to them. She was like one dead, yet holding in reserve the key to her tomb. She felt the terrible images which had so long possessed her fading gradually away. All the hideous phantoms pierrot Tortereau, Jacques Charmolue, had vanished from her mind—all, even the priest himself. And then, too, Phoebus lived. She was sure of it. She had seen him. To her, the life of Phoebus was all in all. After the series of fatal shocks which had laid waste her soul, but one thing was left standing but one sentiment, her love for the captain. Love is like a tree. It grows spontaneously, strikes its roots deep into our whole being, and often continues to flourish over a heart in ruins. And the inexplicable part of it is that the blinder this passion, the more tenacious it is. It is never stronger than when it is utterly unreasonable. Undoubtedly, Esmeralda's thoughts of the captain were tinged with bitterness. Undoubtedly, it was frightful that he too should have been deceived, he who should have deemed such a thing impossible, that he should have believed the stab to come from her, who would have given a thousand lives for him. But, after all, she must not blame him too severely, had she not confessed her crime, had she not weak woman that she was, yielded to torture. The fault was wholly hers. She should have let them tear out every nail, rather than wrest a single word from her. Well, could she but see Phoebus once more, for one moment only, it would need but a word, a look, to undeceive him, to bring him back. She had no doubts in the matter. She also strove to account to herself for various strange facts, for the accident of Phoebus's presence on the day of her doing penance, and for the young girl with whom he was. Probably she was his sister. An improbable explanation, but one with which she contented herself, because she needed to believe that Phoebus still loved her, and loved her alone. Had he not sworn it to her? what more did she want, simple, credulous girl that she was? And then, in this business, were not appearances much more against her than against him? She therefore waited. She hoped. Let us add that the church, that vast church which surrounded her on every side, which guarded her, which preserved her, was itself a sovereign balm. The solemn lines of its architecture— The religious attitude of every object about the young girl, the calm and pious thoughts which were emitted, as it were, from every pore of its stones, unconsciously acted upon her. Moreover, the building had sounds of such majesty and blessing that they soothed her sick soul. The monotonous chant of the officiating priests, the people's response to them, sometimes inarticulate, sometimes thunderous— The harmonious quiver of the stained-glass windows, the organ loud as the blast of a hundred trumpets, the three belfries buzzing and humming like hives of great bees—all this orchestra, with its gigantic gamut perpetually rising and falling from the crowd to the belfry, lulled her memory, her imagination, her grief. The bells particularly soothed her those vast machines poured over her broad waves of mighty magnetism. Thus, each day's rising sun found her more composed, breathing better, less pale. As her inward wounds were healed, her grace and beauty bloomed again, although she was more reserved and quiet. Her former disposition also returned, something even of her gaiety, her pretty pout, her love for her goat, her passion for singing, and her modesty. She was careful to dress herself every morning in the corner of her cell, lest the inmate of some neighboring garret should spy her through the window. When the thoughts of Phoebus gave her time, the gypsy sometimes thought of Quasimodo. He was the only tie, the only bond, the only means of communication left to her with mankind— with the living. Unhappy girl, she was even more completely cut off from the world than Quasimodo. She could not understand the strange friend whom chance had given her. She often reproached herself for not feeling sufficient gratitude to blind her eyes. But, decidedly, she could not accustom herself to the poor ringer. He was too ugly." She had left the whistle which he gave her on the floor. This did not prevent Quasimodo from appearing now and then during the first few days. She did her best not to turn away with too much aversion when he brought her the basket of food or the jug of water. But he always noticed the slightest movement of the kind, and would then go sadly away. Once he came up just as she was fondling jolly, He stood for a few moments, considering the pretty group of the girl and the goat. At last, he said, shaking his heavy, clumsy head, "'My misfortune is that I am still too much like a human being. I wish I were wholly an animal, like that goat.' She looked at him in surprise. He answered her look. "'Oh, I very well know why.' And he withdrew. On another occasion he appeared at the door of the cell, which he never entered, as Esmeralda was singing an old Spanish ballad, the words of which she did not understand, but which had lingered in her memory, because the gypsies had rocked her to sleep with it, when a child. At the sight of his ugly face, coming so suddenly upon her in the midst of her song, the young girl stopped short, with an involuntary gesture of alarm." The wretched ringer fell upon his knees on the door-sill, and clasped his great misshapen hands with a beseeching air. "'Oh,' he said sadly, "'I pray you, go on, and do not drive me away.' She was unwilling to pain him, and, trembling though she was, resumed her song. By degrees, however, her terror subsided and she gave herself up entirely to the emotions aroused by the slow and plaintive music. He remained on his knees, his hands clasped as if in prayer, attentive, scarcely breathing, his eyes riveted upon the gypsy's sparkling orbs. He seemed to read her song in her eyes. Another day he came to her with a timid, awkward air. Listen to me, he said with an effort. I have something to tell you. She signed to him that she was listening. Then he began to sigh, half opened his lips, seemed just about to speak, looked at her, shook his head, and retired slowly, pressing his hand to his head, leaving the gypsy girl utterly amazed. Among the grotesque images carved upon the wall, There was one of which he was particularly fond, and with which he often seemed to exchange fraternal glances. The girl once heard him say to it, Oh, why am not I of stone, like you? Finally, one morning Esmeralda ventured out to the edge of the roof, and looked into the square over the steep top of Saint-Jean-de-Ronde. Quasimodo stood behind her. He stationed himself there to spare the girl as far as possible the annoyance of seeing him. All at once she started. A tear and a flash of joy shone together in her eyes. She knelt on the edge of the roof and stretched out her arms in anguish towards the square, crying, Phoebus, come, come! One word, only one word, for the love of heaven, Phoebus, Phoebus! her voice, her face, her gesture, her whole person, wore the heart-rending expression of a shipwrecked mariner making signals of distress to a ship sailing merrily by in the distance, lit up by a sunbeam on the horizon. Quasimodo bent over the parapet, and saw that the object of this frenzied entreaty was a young man, a captain. A handsome knight, glittering with arms and ornaments, who pranced and curvetted through the square on horseback, waving his plumed helmet to a lovely damsel smiling from her balcony. However, the officer did not hear the unhappy girl's appeal. He was too far away. But the poor deaf man heard it. A deep sigh heaved his breast. He turned away. "'His heart swelled with suppressed tears. "'His clenched fists beat his brow, "'and when he withdrew them, "'each of them grasped a handful of red hair. "'The gypsy paid no heed to him. "'He gnashed his teeth and muttered, "'Damnation! "'So that is how one should look. "'One only needs a handsome outside.' "'Meantime, she remained on her knees,' "'crying with great agitation. "'Oh, now he is dismounting from his horse. "'He is going into that house. "'Phoebus! "'He does not hear. "'Phoebus! "'How cruel of that woman to talk to him "'at the same time that I do. "'Phoebus! "'Phoebus!' "'The deaf man watched her. "'He understood her pantomime. "'The poor bell-ringer's eye filled with tears.' but he did not let a single one flow. All at once he plucked her gently by the hem of her sleeve. She turned. He had assumed a tranquil air and said, "'Shall I go and fetch him?' She uttered a cry of joy. "'Oh, go, go, run, quick! "'That captain, that captain, bring him to me. "'I will love you!' She clasped his knees. He could not help shaking his head, sadly. "'I will bring him to you,' said he in a faint voice. Then he turned his head and hurried quickly down the stairs, choked with sobs. When he reached the square, he saw nothing but the fine horse tied to the post at the door of the gondolier house. The captain had already entered.' He raised his eyes to the roof of the church. Esmeralda was still in the same place, in the same position. He shook his head sorrowfully, then leaned against one of the posts before the gondolier porch, determined to await the captain's coming. Within the house it was one of those gala days which precede a wedding. Quasimodo saw many people go in, and none come out. From time to time he looked up at the roof. The gypsy girl was as motionless as he. A groom came, unfastened the horse, and led him into the stable. The whole day passed thus, Quasimodo against the pillar, Esmeralda on the roof, Phoebus doubtless at the feet of fleur de Lys. At last night came, a moonless night, a dark night. In vain Quasimodo fixed his eyes upon Esmeralda. She soon ceased to be anything more than a white spot in the dusk. Then she vanished. Everything faded out. All was dark. Quasimodo saw the front windows of the Gondolier mansion lighted up from top to bottom. He saw the other windows on the square lighted, one by one. He also saw the lights extinguished to the very last, for he remained at his post all the evening. The officer did not come out. When the latest passers had gone home, when all the windows in the other houses were black, Quasimodo was left alone, entirely in the darkness. There were no street lamps in the Parvis then. But the windows of the Gondolier house remained lighted, even after midnight. Quasimodo, motionless and alert, saw countless moving, dancing shadows pass across the many-colored panes. If he had not been deaf, as the noise of sleeping Paris ceased, he would have heard more and more distinctly within the house the sounds of revelry, music, and laughter. About one o'clock in the morning the guests began to go. Quasimodo, wrapped in darkness, watched them as they passed beneath the porch, bright with torches. The captain was not among them. He was filled with sad thoughts. At times he looked up into the air, as if tired of waiting. Great black heavy clouds, torn and ragged, hung like masses of crepe from the starry arch of night they seemed like the cobwebs of the vaulted sky. In one of these upward glances, he suddenly saw the long window of the balcony, whose stone balustrade was just over his head, mysteriously open. Two persons passed out through the glass door, closing it noiselessly behind them. They were a man and a woman." it was not without some difficulty that Quasimodo succeeded in recognizing in the man the handsome captain. In the woman, the young lady whom he had that morning seen wave a welcome to the officer from that self-same balcony. The square was perfectly dark, and a double crimson curtain, which fell again behind the door as it closed, scarcely permitted a ray of light from the room to reach the balcony." The young man and the girl, as far as our deaf man could judge without hearing a single one of their words, seemed to give themselves up to a very tender tete-a-tete. The young girl had apparently allowed the officer to encircle her waist with his arm, and was making a feeble resistance to a kiss. Quasimodo looked on from below at this scene, which was all the more attractive because it was not meant to be seen he beheld that happiness and beauty with bitterness. After all, nature was not mute in the poor devil, and his spinal column, wretchedly crooked as it was, was quite as susceptible of a thrill as that of any other man. He reflected on the miserable part which Providence had assigned him, that woman, love, pleasure were forever to pass before him, while he could never do more than look on at the happiness of others. But what pained him most in this sight, what added indignation to his annoyance, was the thought of what the gypsy must suffer, could she see it. True, the night was very dark. Esmeralda, if she had remained at her post, which he did not doubt, was very far away, and it was all he could do himself to distinguish the lovers on the balcony. This comforted him. Meantime, their conversation became more and more animated. The young lady seemed to be entreating the officer to ask no more of her. Quasimodo could only make out her fair clasped hands, her smiles blent with tears, her upward glances, and the eyes of the captain eagerly bent upon her. Luckily, for the young girl's struggles were growing feebler, the balcony door was suddenly reopened, and an old lady appeared. The beauty seemed confused, the officer wore a disappointed air, and all three re entered the house. A moment later, a horse was pawing the ground at the door, and the brilliant officer, wrapped in his cloak, passed quickly by Quasimodo. The ringer let him turn the corner of the street then ran after him with his monkey-like agility, shouting, "'Hello there! Captain!' The captain stopped. "'What can that rascal want?' said he, seeing in the shadow the ungainly figure limping quickly towards him. Meantime, Quasimodo caught up with him, and boldly seized the horse by the bridle. "'Follow me, Captain. There is someone here who wishes to speak with you.' "'The devil?' muttered Phoebus. "'Here's an ugly scarecrow whom I think I've seen elsewhere. "'Hello, sirrah,". "'Will you let my horse's bridle go?' "'Captain,' replied the deaf man. "'Don't you even ask who it is?' "'I tell you to let my horse go,' impatiently replied Phoebus. "'What does the fellow mean by hanging to my charger's rein thus? "'Do you take my horse for a gallows?' "'Quasimodo,' far from loosing his hold on the bridle, was preparing to turn the horse's head in the opposite direction. Unable to understand the captain's resistance, he made haste to say, "'Come, captain, it is a woman who awaits you,' he added with an effort. "'A woman who loves you.' "'Errant knave,' said the captain, "'do you think I am obliged to go to all the women who love me, or say they do?' And how if by chance she looks like you, you screech owl? Tell her who sent you that I am about to marry, and that she may go to the devil. Hear me, cried Quasimodo, supposing that with one word he could conquer his hesitation. Come, my lord, it is the gypsy girl whom you know. These words did indeed make a strong impression upon Phoebus but not of the nature which the deaf man expected. It will be remembered that our gallant officer retired with Fleur-de-Lys some moments before Quasimodo rescued the prisoner from the hands of Charmolue. Since then, during his visits to the Gondolier house, he had carefully avoided all mention of the woman, whose memory was painful to him. And on her side Fleur-de-lis had not thought it politic to tell him that the gipsy still lived. Phoebus, therefore, supposed poor similar to have died some two or three months before. Let us add that for some moments past the captain had been pondering on the exceeding darkness of the night, the supernatural ugliness and sepulchral tones of the strange messenger, the fact that it was long past midnight, that the street was as deserted as on the night when the goblin monk addressed him, and that his horse snorted at the sight of Quasimodo. "'The gypsy girl!' he exclaimed, almost terrified. "'Pray, do you come from the other world?' And he placed his hand on the hilt of his dagger. "'Quick, quick!' said the deaf man, striving to urge on the horse. "'This way!' Phoebus dealt him a vigorous kick. Quasimodo's eye flashed. He made a movement to attack the captain. Then, drawing himself up, he said, Oh, how fortunate it is for you that there is someone who loves you. He emphasized the words, someone, and releasing the horse's bridle, added, Be gone. Phoebus clapped spurs to his horse with an oath. "'Quasimodo saw him plunge down the street "'and disappear in the darkness. "'Oh,' murmured the poor deaf man, "'to refuse that.' "'He returned to Notre Dame, "'lighted his lamp, and climbed the tower. "'As he had supposed, "'the gypsy was still in the same place. "'As soon as she caught sight of him, "'she ran to meet him. "'Alone,' she cried mournfully, "'clasping her lovely hands. "'I could not find him,' said Quasimodo, coldly. "'You should have waited all night,' she replied indignantly. "'He saw her angry gesture and understood the reproach. "'I will watch better another time,' said he, hanging his head. "'Go,' said she. "'He left her. "'She was offended with him.' He would rather be maltreated by her than distress her. He kept all the pain for himself. From that day forth the gypsy saw him no more. He ceased to visit her cell. At most she sometimes caught a glimpse of the ringer on the top of a tower, gazing sadly at her. But as soon as she saw him, he disappeared. We must own that she was but little troubled by this willful absence of the poor hunchback. In her secret heart, she thanked him for it. However, Quasimodo did not lie under any delusion on this point. She no longer saw him, but she felt the presence of a good genius around her. Her provisions were renewed by an invisible hand while she slept. One morning, she found a cage of birds on her window sill. Over her cell, there was a piece of carving which alarmed her. She had more than once shown this feeling before Quasimodo. One morning, for all these things occurred at night, she no longer saw it. It was broken off. Anyone who had climbed up to it must have risked his life. Sometimes in the evening she heard a voice, hidden behind the windscreen of the belfry, sing— As if to lull her to sleep. A weird, sad song, Verses without rhyme, Such as a deaf person might make. Heed not the face, maiden, Heed the heart. The heart of a fine young man Is oft deformed. There are hearts where love Finds no abiding place. Maiden, the pine tree is not fair, Not fair as is the poplar tree, But its leaves are green in winter bare. Alas, why do I tell you this? Beauty alone has right to live. Beauty can only beauty love. April, her back doth turn on January. Beauty is perfect. Beauty wins all. Beauty alone is lord of all. The raven only flies by day. The owl by night alone doth fly. The swan by day and night alike may fly. One morning, on waking, she saw at her window two vases full of flowers. One was a very beautiful and brilliant but cracked crystal vase. It had let the water with which it was filled escape, and the flowers which it held were withered. The other was an earthen jug, coarse and common, but it had retained all its water, and the flowers were fresh and rosy. I do not know whether it was done purposely, but Esmeralda took the withered nosegay and wore it all day in her bosom. That day she did not hear the voice from the tower singing. She cared but little. She passed her days in fondling Jolly, in watching the door of the gondolier house, in talking to herself about Phoebus, and in scattering crumbs of bread to the swallows. She had entirely ceased to see or hear Quasimodo. The poor ringer seemed to have vanished from the church. But one night, when she could not sleep and was thinking of her handsome captain, she heard a sigh close by her cell. Terrified, she rose, and saw by the light of the moon a shapeless mass lying outside, across her door. It was Quasimodo sleeping there upon the stones. Chapter 5. The Key to the Port Rouge. Meantime public rumor had informed the archdeacon of the miraculous manner in which the gypsy had been saved. When he learned of it, he knew not what he felt. He had accepted the fact of Esmeralda's death. In this way he made himself perfectly easy. He had sounded the utmost depths of grief. The human heart, Dom Claude had mused upon these matters, can hold but a certain quantity of despair. When the sponge is thoroughly soaked, the sea may pass over it without adding another drop to it. Now, Esmeralda being dead, the sponge was soaked. Everything was over for Dom Claude in this world. But to know that she was alive, and Phoebus too, was to endure afresh the torments, shocks, and vicissitudes of life. And Claude was weary of them all. When he heard this piece of news, he shut himself up in his cloister cell. He did not appear at the chapter meetings, Or the sacred offices. He barred his door against everyone, even the bishop, and remained thus immured for several weeks. He was supposed to be ill, and indeed was so. What did he do in his seclusion? With what thoughts was the unfortunate man battling? Was he waging a final conflict with his terrible passion? Was he plotting a final plan to kill her and destroy himself? His Jeanne, his adored brother, his spoiled child, came once to his door, knocked, swore, entreated, repeated his name half a score of times. Claude would not open. He passed whole days with his face glued to his window panes. From this window, in the cloisters as it was, he could see Esmeralda's cell. He often saw her, with her goat, sometimes with Quasimodo. He noticed the attentions of the ugly deaf man, his obedience, his refined and submissive manners to the gypsy. He recalled, for he had a good memory, and memory is the plague of the jealous, he recalled the bell ringer's strange look at the dancer on a certain evening. He asked himself what motive could have led Quasimodo to save her. HE WITNESSED COUNTLESS LITTLE SCENES BETWEEN THE GIRL AND THE DEAF MAN, WHEN THEIR GESTURES, SEEN FROM A DISTANCE AND COMMENTED ON BY HIS PASSION, STRUCK HIM AS VERY TENDER. HE DISTRUSTED WOMEN'S WHIMS. THEN HE VAGUELY FELT AWAKENING WITHIN HIM A JEALOUSY SUCH AS HE HAD NEVER IMAGINED POSSIBLE, A JEALOUSY WHICH MADE HIM BLUSH WITH RAGE AND SHAME. "'Twas bad enough when it was the captain, but this fellow! The idea overwhelmed him. His nights were frightful. Since he knew the gypsy girl to be alive, the chill fancies of specters and tombs which had for an entire day beset him had vanished, and the flesh again rose in revolt against the spirit. He writhed upon his bed at the idea that the dark-skinned damsel— was so near a neighbor. Every night his fevered imagination pictured Esmeralda in all those attitudes which had stirred his blood most quickly. He saw her stretched across the body of the wounded captain, her eyes closed, her beautiful bare throat covered with Phoebus's blood. At that moment of rapture, when he himself had pressed upon her pale lips, that kiss which had burned the unhappy girl, half dead though she was, like a living coal. He again saw her disrobed by the savage hands of the executioners, exposing and enclosing in the buskin with its iron screws her tiny foot, her plump and shapely leg, and her white and supple knee. He again saw that ivory knee alone, left uncovered by Tortoroo's horrid machine. Finally, he figured to himself the young girl in her shift, the rope about her neck, her shoulders bare, her feet bare, almost naked, as he saw her on what was to have been her last day on earth. These voluptuous pictures made him clinch his hands and caused a shudder to run from head to foot. One night, especially— they so cruelly heeded his virgin and priestly blood that he bit his pillow, leaped from his bed, threw a surplice over his shirt, and left his cell, lamp in hand, but half-dressed, wild and haggard, with flaming eyes. He knew where to find the key to the Port Rouge, which led from the cloisters to the church, and he always carried about him, as the reader knows, a key to the tower stairs." CHAPTER Six: THE KEY TO THE PORT ROUGE CONTINUED That night Esmeralda fell asleep in her cell, full of peace, hope, and pleasant thoughts. She had been asleep for some time, dreaming, as she always did, of Phoebus, when she fancied she heard a noise. Her sleep was light and restless, a bird's sleep. A mere trifle roused her. She opened her eyes. The night was very dark. Still, she saw a face peering in at the window. The vision was lighted up by a lamp. When this face saw that Esmeralda was looking at it, it blew out the lamp. Still, the girl had had time to catch a glimpse of it. Her eyes closed in terror. "'Oh,' said she in a feeble voice, "'the priest!' All her past misery flashed upon her with lightning speed. She sank back upon her bed, frozen with fear. A moment after, she felt a touch which made her shudder so that she started up wide awake and furious. The priest had glided to her side. He clasped her in his arms. She tried to scream, but could not. "'Be gone, monster! Begone, assassin!' she said at last, in a low voice trembling with wrath and horror. "'Mercy! mercy!' murmured the priest, pressing his lips to her shoulders. She seized his bald head in both hands by the hairs which remained, and strove to prevent his kisses as if they had been bites. "'Mercy!' repeated the unfortunate man. "'If you knew what my love for you is—' It is fire, molten lead, a thousand knives driven into my heart. And he held her arms with superhuman strength. She cried desperately, Release me, or I shall spit in your face. He released her. Degrade me. Strike me. Do your worst. Do what you will. But have mercy. Love me. Then she struck him with the impotent fury of a child. She clinched her lovely hands to bruise his face. Demon, be gone! Love me, love me, have pity, cried the poor priest, clasping her and returning her blows with caresses. All at once she felt him stronger than she. No more of this, he exclaimed, gnashing his teeth. She lay conquered, crushed, and quivering in his arms, at his mercy. She felt a wanton hand wandering over her. She made one last effort and shrieked, Help! Help! A vampire! A vampire! No one came. Jolly alone was awakened and bleated piteously. Silence! said the panting priest. Suddenly... In her struggle, as she fought upon the floor, the gypsy's hand encountered something cold and metallic. It was Quasimodo's whistle. She seized it with a convulsion of hope, raised it to her lips, and blew with all her remaining strength. The whistle gave forth a sharp, shrill, piercing sound. "'What is that?' said the priest. Almost as he spoke— he felt himself grasped by a vigorous arm. The cell was dark. He could not distinguish exactly who held him, but he heard teeth chattering with rage, and there was just enough light mingled with the darkness for him to see the broad blade of a knife gleam above his head. He thought he recognized the figure of Quasimodo. He supposed that it could be no other he remembered having stumbled as he entered, over a bundle lying across the outside of the door. But as the newcomer did not utter a word, he knew not what to think. He flung himself upon the arm which held the knife, crying, "'Quasimodo!' He forgot, in this moment of distress, that Quasimodo was deaf. In the twinkling of an eye, the priest was stretched on the floor— and felt a heavy knee pressed against his breast. By the angular imprint of that knee he knew Quasimodo. But what was he to do? How was he also to be recognized by the hunchback? Night made the deaf man blind. He was lost. The young girl, pitiless as an enraged tigress, did not interpose to save him. The knife came nearer his head. It was a critical moment All at once, his adversary appeared to hesitate. "'No blood upon her,' said he in a dull voice. It was, indeed, the voice of Quasimodo. Then the priest felt a huge hand drag him from the cell by the heels. He was not to die within those walls. Luckily for him, the moon had risen some moments before. When they crossed the threshold— its pale rays fell upon the priest. Quasimodo looked him in the face, trembled, relaxed his hold, and shrank back. The gypsy, who had advanced to the door of her cell, saw with surprise that the actors had suddenly changed parts. It was now the priest who threatened, and Quasimodo who implored. The priest— who was overwhelming the deaf man with gestures of wrath and reproach, violently signed him to withdraw. The deaf man bowed his head, then knelt before the gypsy's door. "'My lord,' said he, in grave, submissive tones, "'do what you will afterwards. "'But kill me first.' "'So saying,' he offered his knife to the priest. The priest, beside himself with rage, rushed upon him. But the young girl was quicker than he. She tore the knife from Quasimodo's hands and uttered a frenzied laugh. "'Approach now!' she cried. She held the blade high above her head. The priest stood irresolute. She would certainly have struck." "'You dare not touch me now, coward!' she exclaimed. Then she added with a pitiless look, and knowing that her words would pierce the priest's heart like a thousand red-hot irons. "'Ah, I know that Phoebus is not dead!' The priest threw Quasimodo to the ground with a kick, and rushed down the stairs, quivering with rage. When he had gone, Quasimodo picked up the whistle which had just saved the gypsy. It was getting rusty, said he, returning it to her. Then he left her alone. The young girl, overcome by this violent scene, fell exhausted on her bed and burst into a flood of tears. Her horizon was again becoming overcast. The priest, on his side, groped his way back to his cell. That was sufficient. Dom Claude was jealous of Quasimodo. He repeated musingly the fatal words, No one else shall have her.